welcome to Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Thank you, Maureen Spohr, coming on Black Light Mass Incarceration Show to speak with us about the work that you do. From my understanding, you have our work with the uh, National Exonerees doing some research and things of that nature. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. The, uh, the National Registry of Exonerations is an online database. People want to find it. Just Google National Registry of Exonerations. It's an online database of well, we're approaching now 3,400 wrongful convictions in the United States since 1989. Uh, it's a, uh, and I'll get back to 1989 in, in a second. The, it's a three university project. It's Michigan Law School, Michigan State Law School, and the University of California, Irvine. And, uh, it is a, was launched in 2012. Um, and it was originally a project of Northwestern Center on Wrongful Convictions and Michigan Law School. And uh, things have changed a little bit in terms of who are the sponsoring organizations of universities, but the mission uh, remains the same. We collect data, um, more than 200 internal data points, uh, and write narrative summaries of every case uh, that fits our criteria. I'll talk about the criteria in a second, but it is, um, 1989 was picked as sort of the beginning fence post because that was the year of the first DNA exploration in the United States. Pardon me. And so it seemed to make logical sense that this kind of ushered in what we call, what we maybe call the modern day era of recognizing, um, identifying wrongful convictions. And power of DNA really ha it goes beyond just the individual cases um, that it helps exonerate, but it has provided a sort of a window, what I call window into the engine room of the criminal justice system and shows how it breaks down in all kinds of cases, not just uh, cases where there's actually testable biological evidence um, that you can get a DNA profile and prove or disprove who was or was not involved in the case. Um, when you take a step back and, and really the innocence project, the innocence network sort of pioneered this, which is you get a DNA exoneration and you step back and say, what went wrong in this case? And was it a mistaken witness identification? Was it a bad forensics test? Was it, you know, all the different things that can, that can go wrong and you apply that sort of rubric to cases with non-DNA evidence, and you see that there are people being wrongfully convicted for those same reasons, and um, they don't have the benefit of, of what some call DNA, DNA um, to sort of propel their case towards exoneration sooner. So um, we have a criteria, and it essentially boils down to you have to be convicted and your conviction has to be set aside and uh, it has to either be 
case dismissed or an acquittal at a retrial, there has to be some evidence favorable to the defendant that wasn't presented at the time of the trial. It could be because the prosecution hid it. It could be because the police hid it. It could be because there was just new evidence that was developed later. I remember writing up a case where um, someone was convicted, and I want to say it was in Boston. It was a number of years ago. And when the news of the conviction made the TV, somebody was sitting at home and said, wait a minute, I saw that crime happen. It was a shooting and someone ran out of a store or something, as I recall. And that was not the person that I saw. And so it was a new witness came forward um, that had never been found before. Um, sometimes you have cases where the defense wants to present expert testimony and the judge says no. And an appellate court says, wrong, um, should have been allowed. We're going to vacate the conviction and get your chance to present your evidence. Could be because there's alibi witnesses that weren't called because the defense failed to properly investigate the case. Uh, it could be because a witness recants. Um, we have a whole database internally on witness recantations where uh, you see this, especially in child sex cases where there's a, there's a custody battle that's going on and a young child um, basically says, well, you know, the stepfather or whoever molested me. And then years later, here's an example. It's the one I like to talk about as a case out of Texas where uh, it was a seven-year-old boy. And so he testified that his stepfather had sexually molested him. And there was no physical evidence. Um, and it was basically his word against the stepfather. And then the, the mother, who was in a divorce proceeding, um, testified that the, the boy had made an outcry to her. I think the grandmother might have said the same thing, the mother's mother. Mm -hmm. So he was convicted and he got sentenced to 20 years and he did 10 and he got released on parole and now he's back. Um, came back to the same town. That's where his own family. And about a year later, he's walking down the street and who comes walking along the street, but this kid who's now 18 years old and says, what happened to you? You just dropped out of my life. And he says, what are you talking about? I went to prison for 10 years because of what you said in court. And he said, I thought I was justifying in the divorce case. It was seven. So he, um, spent two years and eventually convinced the district attorney's office that what he had said was a lie because his mother had told him, unless you say this, you're never going to be able to see me again. And we see this happen where young children are coerced and used to further, you know, grudges or to extract revenge and the kids are unwitting and they come forward as adults when they realize the significance of what went on. And one of the things that I think we track, a lot, we track six different causes of wrongful conviction. I'll explain that in a second. Um, but one of the things that we see is that um, more and more frequently recantations 
are starting to be believed. They've always been viewed with great suspicion, you know, were you lying then, are you lying now kind of thing. And uh, judges have been reluctant to overturn convictions on the basis of recantations. But, you know, when you get a recantation and a a DNA case and you get other corroborating evidence in non-DNA recantation cases that show that the recantation is true and accurate, judges and even prosecutors start to have some confidence um, that there can be true recantations. I can't tell you the number of cases that look like there absolutely should be exonerations, but the courts refuse to to budge, saying that oh, we just don't believe the, the recantations. And then you've seen instances where, like say in, in New Orleans and in Chicago, where the recanters, the prosecutors, want to prosecute and go after the recanters. So uh, I'll talk just a little bit about our, 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 cri- our uh, that's our criteria. And I'd like to say that we keep more innocent people out of the registry than we let guilty people come in that fit the criteria. If they're, you could fit the criteria, but if we, if there's unexplained physical evidence of guilt, then you don't get in. An, an example of that would be, we see cases, particularly in drug cases where, um, uh, the case will be a conviction and then they find out that the police officer was corrupt and was corrupt during a period of time. And so the state goes back in and says, we can no longer stand by these cases. So we're going to vacate them because this was in essence, impeachment evidence that wasn't known to the defense at the time when the detectives or officers testified. Um, but if at the case where someone got stopped and had a suitcase full of cocaine in the trunk, unless their argument is that it was planted. They basically benefited from the fact that the cop was corrupt. Uh, right. That's, that's unexplained physical evidence. And by unexplained, it means it doesn't have an explanation that's, um, synonymous with innocence. Those are, they're, those are relatively few. Um, we track, uh, mistaken witness identifications, false confessions, false or misleading forensic evidence. Perjury or false accusation, official misconduct, and inadequate legal defense, poor defense lawyer. So those are the six. And every once in a while, you get a case that has, you know, the full Monty, all six contributing factors. Right. Um, and so I'll stop there. Um, as I said, we we're, we just posted a case. We post about 200 cases a year. Um, some are cases that happened in the past that we find out about people find out about our registry and they'll email us and say, Hey, I think my case should be in there and send us to your documents. And you know what? They're right. Um, because think about it. How do you find these cases? You can't call, we have 3000 counties in this country. You can't call up every county once a week and say, I had any exonerations this week. Um, they don't track it like that. So we rely on, uh, innocence projects, on uh, pro bono defense lawyers. The news media is a huge source for us. They still cover these, maybe not quite as aggressively as they once did when, you know, DNA first came on the scene. 
DNA exonerations were automatic front page news. I worked for the Chicago Tribune for 25 years, and there was a time where um, I went to one of the editors and said, uh, I've got a story for tomorrow I can offer for tomorrow, but a DNA exoneration that's going to happen tomorrow. Um, and we've got it as an exclusive. And he looked at me and said, haven't we done that story before? And of course I said, it's somebody else. <laughs> right. You know, but there is a fatigue factor in there. And, and, you know, we fight that all the time. And, and I, uh, I, what we believe in is the power of data and uh, that you, you can't say we cherry picked cases to try to make a point so that when we, for example, published a report on race and wrongful convictions, um, not all that long ago, it was based on the first 2,400 exonerations. And these are all, you know, vetted all by our criteria belong in the registry. And so that we can say that person of color is seven times more likely to be convicted than a white person. And that's, you know, based on our data. And it wasn't that we just found a couple of good examples and threw together a report. And so that's why we feel like the registry has great power to influence change legislation were used by the media, legislators, policymakers, different lawyers were cited briefs. So that's a long gospel to start out. So um, that, that I'm happy to, you know, you pull the string and I just keep talking. <laughs> so why do you think there's so many wrongful convictions? And I know that it is hard to get a lot of attention when you when you know that you've been wrongfully convicted. And I know a lot of cases, you know, they don't have DNA evidence and really trying to find the legal help or the support to, you know, actually bring your case to the forefront and get the help that you need. Because we have millions of people who are wrongfully convicted and they can't get any help or, you know, because they don't have a DNA case. Why do you think that that is so prevalent here in America? Well, what I always say is we don't know how many people are wrongfully convicted. We only know the ones we know about. Um, we don't know how many people died before they could be wrong. Their, their convictions could be overturned. We don't know how many people served their sentences and said, you know, I'm just going to go on and live my life and as best I can and feel that they have no uh, recourse. We don't know how many people are innocent and there were cases where either the physical evidence was destroyed or there was no physical evidence. The witnesses have died. And so they almost have no way to even prove, um, you know, once you get convicted, undoing it becomes so much exponentially more difficult. And, um, so, you know, even if it's 1%, think of how many tens, hundreds of thousands of people it is because we incarcerate so many people in this country. And, and the thing is, um, that's just talking about felonies. I think all the people that get framed by cops for misdemeanors and, or get framed for a felony and plead out to a misdemeanor and then just go serve their sentence three years, four years. You know, we have these cases in Chicago, um, where there was a corrupt police officer 
and his crew, where they focused on a public housing development. And they framed scores of people. And they just put drugs on people and just said, here, these are yours. If they didn't want to pay money, right. well, for example. And the, the reality is less than 10% of cases in this country are decided by trial. Most people plead guilty. If everybody went to trial, the system would explode. Not designed to handle trials in the vast majority of cases. And if you go to trial, you risk, you know, there's a penalty, there's a tax. You're going to get more time, maybe double, maybe double, maybe triple. And you know, you see these cases, all of these cases that came through Chicago, all these defendants will file an affidavit and almost all of them say, I told my public defender, I told my defense lawyer, I was innocent. They said, nobody's going to believe you over a cop because it's, he said, or he said, and, um, if you go to trial, you're going to get a lot more time. And so here's the offer, 18 months, two years, three years. And, you know, we have some people that were framed multiple times, you know, they go back to the same milieu and here comes the bad cop again. You're going to pay me now. And, you know, and no, I don't have any money. Well, okay. Off you go. Um, so there's that. And then there's the problem of, you mentioned this resources. Um, you know, you talk to anybody who works at an innocence project in this country and there's, you know, about 60 of them, um, almost every state has one. Some states have more than one. Um, and they'll say, we don't even want to take a case unless the person has at least 10 years left on their sentence, because it's all about triaging. Um, because we try to get the ones with the people, you know, what comes first, death penalty cases. So, cause that's an outcome that's, you know, then life without parole, cause that's another form of a death. Um, and then it kind of, you know, you work backward and, um, because these cases can take so long to litigate. Um, and what they're trying to do is get people out that don't belong in there. Um, and somebody who's got it like less than a year, I mean, unless it's a, not, it's a, like an absolute throwdown where, you know, put this on the table and the state's going to cave. Um, it's the triage that's brutal, the brutal truths, um, to, to have to deal with, especially if it's you, you know, um, but you see these people, um, occasionally who keep fighting after their release. You know, there was the case in, uh, we just added to the registry from New York, uh, Richard Mack, who, um, was convicted, um, 47 years ago and of rape and had served his time seven years. But for the last 40 years, he's been sex offender. Um, and we've enacted those laws to basically punish people for the rest of their lives. Uh, some of the most draconian laws in the country. And he finally got around and got the innocence project in New York to do a DNA test and the evidence was still there. It was exonerated. Um, we have a list on our website uh, of the, we call the longest incarcerations list. And this is the list of everyone who spent more than 25 years from the date of their conviction until the date of their release. 
and there's more than 200. Um, and I think that the, you know, we have several that are over 40 and you think, how do they manage to do that? How do they come out alive? And then you say, and they do, and they have, and then the same token, you go and wonder how many didn't, because those are the ones we just don't know. Yeah. Um, Timothy Cole was a case in Texas. Um, and he was, he died in prison and it was in the process of getting DNA testing and he had cancer and he died and they continued on with the testing and he was exonerated. Um, and, and so we have a few posthumous exonerations in the registry, but the fact is, is that most of the time when someone dies, sort of like that's the end of the road, that and tragic as it is, it's really difficult then the way the court system is set up because you know, the person who's there is not there what's the jurisdiction anymore. And it can get, it can get kind of nasty, especially if the state is opposed. In the case of Timothy Cole, the state had agreed to it and they said, fine, let's just keep going. Um, but the resources problem is, is seriously the most uh, significant issue because if you talk to any innocence project, the day you put out your open for business, the next day your mailbox is full. Full. Mm-hmm. It's full. And, and, and so you have to have a, a staff that screens them and the process of, of, of screening means maybe you have to gather documents. It's a time consuming process and then assign an investigator and see, is there anything that can move the needle in this case? I did this work as a reporter in Chicago for a number of years, and I had this case where, um, it was three, um, three men who were convicted of shoving a, uh, a teenager down a elevator shaft mm-hmm. in a high rise. Um, and it was sort of, it was basically considered to be a gang related thing. And, uh, it was based on the testimony of one witness. And by the time that, um, one of them reached out to me, uh, they'd all been sentenced to life. One had died and the other two were alive in prison. And they said, um, there were phone records that they told their defense lawyer about, but he never got them. And of course, now that by this is, you know, 15, 20 years later. Those records are long gone. <laughs> so I became convinced that these guys were innocent. So as a journalist, what can I do? I have to look at, say, what can I do to make this case, um, move the needle. I have to find that witness and maybe that witness who I think was early twenties, late teens, um, who was basically prosecuted as for concealing a homicide and got five years and served two and testified for the state. Okay. Got a deal. Will he stand by that testimony all these years later? And I spent a lot of hours trying to, to get him to talk to me. And the closest I ever got was, um, his brother told me, well, you know, they can prosecute you for perjury. I knew that it was probably a lie. Most likely he had lied. Um, I think it was an accident. 
the, the, the public housing projects were notorious in Chicago during that period of time for, you know, the elevator door opens and if you don't look first, platform is not always there. Um, and so I couldn't do anything. It just haunted. Um, and you know, eventually the other two guys died in prison. Wow. Nothing. I just couldn't, couldn't do anything. And that's sort of the world we live in where, you know, in a world of limited resources, if you have two cases in front of you and one has testable evidence, DNA testable, that one's going to come to the front of the queue because you get an answer sooner and it's definitive, mostly in most cases, um, depending on uh, where the biological evidence came or what, it, it, how, how it related to the case. Um, and so they, as I said, it's a triage, it becomes a pecking order. You know, the more time that passes, the harder it is because yes. witnesses die, they disappear. Wouldn't believe how many floods there have been in basements of courthouses over the last 30 years. It's like, oh, well, the records were all, you know, we had a burst pipe and all the records are gone, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, I'll stop. Thank you for that um, insightful information. And I kind of want to piggyback off of what you said as you being a journalist and it really hitting home with you, because I know a lot of a lot of people do reach out to the news to see if they could find an investigative um, news journalist, because it is hard to go just find a, a private investigator, especially if you don't have the funds. And then you also have to have a private investigator that wants to invest in that case. And so what do you think could be done to help, you know, the Innocence Project and some of these other organizations who do help people that have claims of wrongful conviction so that we can try to end mass incarceration in America? Well, there's, a, you know, there's some organizations that work on the front end and we, we call ourselves sort of a front end. We, what we're doing is providing data that people can use to either affect change to prevent the wrongful convictions in the first place or to help argue that people are wrongly. You have organizations like the Reform Alliance in Philadelphia um, that does a lot to end mass incarceration, to, to work for, with people who are doing life without parole, to get paroles, to, to work with legislators, to allow for parole. You know, in California, they have the three strikes law. So if you're third felony, you could go away for life. Life, and you know, it, it, it could have been for you know stealing gum three times in a row. Essentially, you know, and that's sort of been done away with. California has also done away with the, um, with the it, it, what we would call the felony murder rule. So, you know, and people who are um, serving life in California. Uh, but who didn't pull the trigger, maybe just happened to be in the same car. Um, they're getting paroled. You know, when I was a journalist, I'd get letters from people and they'd say, you know, you should look at my case. I'm innocent. Um, somebody else did the shooting, but they were convicted under the felony, the accountability mm -hmm. law. My husband's convicted under that. And that's, you know, 
what that is is yeah you didn't actually it's it's they call it the law of parties in texas where they actually execute people there uh under the law of parties when they the gunman pleads guilty for life and then the person who's sitting in the car in the parking lot gets death so uh, california has allowed people people are getting paroled now on that and there's a lot of effort being done to get people out and even innocence projects are starting to focus more on getting people out especially say in in louisiana where tons of people that were sentenced to life the uh, new orleans innocence project new orleans is doing a lot of work um working with and this is happening i would say primarily in in jurisdictions where they have what we call a progressive a district attorney who comes in and says, you know, what's the reason for incarcerating these people? Um, you know, there's, uh, I don't know if you know of Jennifer Thompson, but she was the victim of a rape. Um, and, uh, her, she and her, and the, the man who was convicted of it, who she said that the man, uh, and was exonerated, uh, Ronald Cotton, they wrote a book together about it called Picking Cotton. And, um, they both lecture, uh, and Jennifer's involved with an organization called healing justice. And this is for people who not only are exonerees, but, um, who are get released, people who get released on parole, help them get back in, into the world that is often vastly different from when they went in and some people never drove a car. All right. And so, but her husband, um, does research um on incarceration and you know as he says it we're basically we have a system where we have old age homes with barbed wire on it and we're taking care of this growing growing number of people who are serving life without parole and all the studies indicate that people age out of crime they do you know you don't you don't see you know 55 year old men robbing 7-Elevens, um, it, it's there, these are crimes that are committed in their twenties and maybe their thirties. And, you know, this is not, this is a young person's problem. And what we have this cycle of is we charge, I just saw a story today about St. Louis County where the progressive DA was basically ousted. And the new DA that, that came in, the number of charges he's filed is, is virtually tripled in the first three months. And progressive DA was very much into diversion programs. And these are young people and their brains are, you know, they're still not developed like they should go. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we go back to, we decided. And I mean, we kind of collectively, the current things in the nation, that the answer to solving so many of our social problems was to shove people into the court system and let them deal with it. Um, and so drug programs died out, dried up, or had very limited opportunities. And we shoved people into the system, made them felons, and made them, um, you know, exponentially more difficult to try to make a life uh, and who's the victim of 
primary victim of this is people of color. It's just, there's no debate about that anymore. Um, juveniles getting life without parole. Um, and there's a really interesting, um, Scott Turow, the author wrote a really interesting book about 20 years ago called reflections on the death, how he came to, um, being involved in, in first a case that involved actual innocence. And then another one where it was, um, he, he realized our punishment is totally inappropriate. And just in the death penalty, we have this notion that we just have to have punished people so badly that we just want to grind them under our boot heel and put them away. And as if that's going to make us safer, we know it does. And there's no data that has proven that that has made us any more safer than what we are today. Because if that's the case, then we would not have any crime at all. Um, and, you know, I've been having this conversation a lot to what, you know, talking to people saying that we are literally warehousing communities now because you have juveniles, you have young people, you have middle-aged people, and you have elderly people. So now we are really to the point where we are warehousing communities because I know in North Carolina, um, they have added palliative care units to our well, You know, the fellow I was telling you about, he's at the, he's in North Carolina. And so he studied their system and you have fellow inmates who are being hospice care workers. And you see that in, at Angola, um, and in North Carolina and a, a bunch of prisons where they, they are actually taking care of their fellow inmates. Uh, Instead of letting them go, we, you know, we don't have parole unless you committed a crime before 1994. We don't, you're not going to be paroled. You're just going to have, you know, without parole or death penalty or however many years you got. And, you know, we have the mandatory minimum as well. So that keeps so many people inside. And then we also have the conference of DAs, which have advocated for a lot of the criminal justice reform bills not to even go through. Like they have a sponsor that advocates for them to the legislators not to pass these bills and so we are just continuously to warehouse people in the prison system the only good thing that we have happened was when they um made the law that juveniles shouldn't spend life without parole so we are starting to get them out but you have elderly people who were you know one guy told me he had been that was actually on my show had been in for 42 years and he didn't commit the crime and they told him that he could have got out in like 1990 but somehow got overlooked and finally after we developed the juvenile review board he's going to be actually getting out but 42 years of being in prison for something you didn't do and there's no such thing we have like one progressive prosecutor in durham county and that's it all the rest of the prosecutors believe in the tough on crime thing and i think it's really mainly for political gain um because as we see the tough on crime has not stopped any crime in north carolina at all and it's just really hard here because i know a lot of people that i advocate for you know they are wrongfully convicted and you know it's just that we don't have any other resources to help them because a lot of you know our innocence project is small so you know they can only help with so many people and We have North Carolina actual innocence, but they've only, I think out of 350 cases, they've only exonerated 15 people. They move very slowly. Very slow. And then they just pass the law that makes it harder for them to get out. So it's just trying to figure out what North Carolina can do to 
to ease our criminal justice system because it's, it's overloaded. Um, you know, they don't have staff at all, really, besides maybe like unit managers coming in. It's like they're not seeing the fact that we're warehousing these many people, but we don't have enough staff to watch them or enough prisons open because we had to close prisons due to them not even having staff at all. And so it's just, it's, it's really hard, it's, especially when you're in South. It's, it's really hard to, to get any help when you have been wrongfully convicted. And there's so many wrongfully convicted people of color, especially in North Carolina. You know, you know there's um, an organization called Just Trust. Are you familiar with that? I've heard of Just Trust. Uh-huh. Just Trust. You know, the, the executive director is in uh, Asheville. Their chief program officer, whose name... Um, I forget, but was uh, a, a good friend of um, Daryl. Um, Daryl Hart. Daryl. Um, I saw some sad news today. Michael Smith died. He did. Natural causes say so. They say natural causes, but yeah, know. that was that was um, that's a sad. He got a raw deal. No, I mean, he got out, but he, he should have been exonerated, um, in my opinion. Uh, I, I, you know, the Just Trust, maybe they can, you know, their focus is on the South, they say. So I don't know, maybe they would entertain some money for a program or something. I would, I would sure hope, sure hope so. I mean, that's the resources is the big issue and, and, um, everybody's fighting for the same money. Uh, unfortunately, you know, foundations get inundated i had a conversation with somebody the other day who said philanthropy is down because um of the political nature of it where people don't um they're they're generally conservative to begin with and they don't want to be identified with you know defund the police or they don't want to be seen as promoting progressive prosecution things because They'll be viewed as, well, you know, we just want to open the prisons and let everybody out because people see these, you know, the world is, is not black and white. I mean, and by that, I mean, it's, it's, we all work in a shades of gray and, um, it's too easy, um, to say, well, this is the reason why crimes are up, or this is the reason why. You know, look at, look at this district attorney who says he's not going to, uh, prosecute, um, people who, um, get abortions. And then the governor says, okay, you're gone. So what we, you know, what, what seems to be the current, by current, I mean, sort of the way the wind blows is we want people in there who are hardliners and don't really give a damn about people as human beings, that they're just objects to put on an assembly line and off they go. They go. And I think that that, you know, I think people need to understand that prison is just modern day slavery. And I know that North Carolina made, I think, around $14 million off of correctional enterprises. So that's another thing that drives incarceration that I need for people to understand is that they're using these people to get resources and things done while they pay them a little or nothing. But the state is making having all this money coming in 
but they don't want to let anybody go. So why do you think, like, how can we change that? Because we've tried to change that narrative with bringing in progressive prosecutors, but now we see that, you know, they're trying to make, give them a bad thing. And, but I think it's showing that, you know, we have so many people that are wrongfully convicted and the tough on crime rhetoric does not work. So how do we change to make a more just system? Because, I mean, it only takes you days, hours, weeks to be convicted, but it could take a lifetime to prove your innocence. You know, I think it's a generational um, uh, problem. and we, we didn't get here overnight. You know, you go back to really the early 90s when there was a lot of, you know, the so-called crack epidemic. And there was a lot of highfalutin rhetoric. And, and then we heard about juveniles as super predators. And so laws were passed that allowed this to happen. Um, just, it wasn't just allowed them to happen, but, you know, promoted it. And, and so um, I think that it's going to have to be a generational effort that's going to take time and money. It's going to take legislation. It's going to take proof. So Illinois, uh, for example, is in on the precipice of being the first state uh, to eliminate cash bail. Uh, New York tried it uh, and rolled it back. The, 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 we're going to see study after study after study that basically shows that the cash bail system doesn't contribute anything. It just makes people plead guilty uh, sooner to get out, to get back to their families. And you get who knows how many wrongful convictions occur through that s circumstance. We need to get focus on getting legislators elected who understand these issues and are willing to pass laws and are willing to resist passing laws that further um, have further negative impact on the criminal justice system. We need to engage the electorate, and that's increasingly difficult um, in a really highly divided um, society where you have people on one side that really wouldn't be satisfied unless they wiped out, you know, half a generation, 30% <laughs> of the population, you know. Um, and so, you know, we didn't get here overnight and we're not going to solve it overnight, but we just need to have people, we need to educate our young people, um, to, 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 to get past this and understand that there's a lot of false narratives that get peddled and, um, that, that to, and to be aware, um, be able to protect themselves from predatory policing um, that's the, the that sort of activity that goes on i wish i could say here's the plan and it's going to work but, but that's really what we have to do and it has to be uh, a huge effort and you know uh, the, the reform alliance that i would mentioned you know meek mills involved with that and jay-z is involved in that mm -hmm. and they're doing a lot of work on on um, mass incarceration reducing it the more that we can get um, you know, I was on a panel last summer down in Texas talking about these issues. And, uh, one of, uh, one of the panelists said that everybody gets a Kim Kardashian and boy, it's an absolute, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> need more Kim Kardashians. Um, 
But, you know, what she has done, I think, to raise public awareness, and it just needs to be sustained. Um, and more, the more people who are, you know, from the world of headline celebrity, they have influence. They have, they mm-hmm. can, they can reach people, um, that a lot of other people can't. And they're starting to have some, I think, persuasiveness in the system. And we just hope that, you know, they're attracting tech money, which is, no. Well, the registry ourselves, we're fighting for our own survival. Even though we're a three university project, their support is in kind through professors and hosting a website. We rely on public donations um, and public support. And so we're sort of facing our own crisis at the moment and, and are reaching out to people in hopes that we can raise awareness about what we do and what, why what we do uh, is important. Uh, and from the perspective of, you know, we don't actually represent people. We don't go into court. We can't say we got this person exonerated. What we can do is say Illinois passed a law a couple of years ago that bars detectives from lying to juveniles during interrogation. Uh, as you know, it's legal to lie. Detectives can lie during interrogations. Um, and But it's illegal for you to lie to them. <laughs> right, right. Right. Off you go. <laughs> so um, when Northwestern University wanted to craft a bill and get legislators involved, they came to us and said, um, do you collect data on when detectives lie? And actually we do. Even though it's a legal thing, we collect data on that if we have the evidence that shows it. And here, here's a list of every exonerated juvenile who falsely confessed and detectives lie. And they took that data and they went to legislators who were, oh my God. And they carried the water and the bill was passed and the governor signed it. And it's the only state in the country now. And others are starting to model. Well, would that have happened without our data? I don't know. I'd like Probably. to think that I would like to think that, you know, people want some data. They don't want to just say, well, because you said so. Right. No. It's not because I said so, it's because here are the cases, the background. So we want to continue to perform that function and continue to be out there for people to use us to effect change in, in the system. It's not going to be overnight. I've always been an optimist. I mean, maybe that's, you know, why I became a journalist, because I was an optimist that we could make things better. But um, I, I, I do think that in the, in the end, um, that justice is going to prevail. It's, it's taking decades of problems and trying to untangle them and, and, you know, undo them. I can think of a better word, but I'm not going to use that. <laughs> undo them and make the system work in a way that we save people, that we don't condemn them. Right. You know? Right. People do bad things, okay? Everybody. We're human. There's no, you know, and I like to say, nobody's as good as the best thing they've done, and nobody's as bad as the worst thing they've done. Everyone, and if you believe in redemption and the power of redemption, and I do, um, I think that we should give people the chance to do that. And there will some that won't take it, but they're going to be in the minority. 
because human nature, I think, being what it is, when you see people that come out and it's like, it's one thing if you did the crime, but if you didn't do the crime, I mean, how did you figure out to how to put one foot in front of another for 10, 15, 25, 30, 40 years? And you talk to these people and they're, it's, they tell incredible stories about, you know, I, I couldn't give up hope because then I knew that I was just going to, going to die myself inside or it, it varies. But, um, I always believed that, that I had people who believed in. And so the more people that we can get to believe and work on it on the front end, as well as the back end, because this is the problem, you know, we've got this huge amount of people locked up and we got to get rid of, we got to get, we got to reduce this. Yeah. We can't just reduce it by death. Um, it's just, that's, that's not an end game. It's not going to work. Um, and you know, I, there was a period of time when I used to think that talking to people's pocketbooks actually was an argument and maybe that can work. But you know, when you talk about what's the cost of incarceration, you know, how many tens of thousand dollars does it cost a year now to incarcerate? How much money do we spend as taxpayers for private prisons, which are a disaster? How much money do we spend as taxpayers to pay judgments that are obtained? You know, two, two exonerees in Chicago settled their case. It was just approved yesterday in the city council of Chicago, $25 million. It's a lot of money. You know, the, 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 I used to think that that would resonate. I kind of lost faith in that, that resonates with, you know, in the city of Chicago where they're not self-insured, they're self-insured. So that, it, that there's no insurance company that's going to come in and bail them out. That's coming out of taxpayers' pockets. I think that you have to, it has to be, uh, all across the waterfront it yes. has to be from beginning pillar to post, beginning to end, and people need to understand that it has an impact on them, whether it's their tax dollars, whether it's their, whether they have a false sense, you know, I'm afraid to go into my house because crime is so bad or, you know, there's a lot of false narratives that are being peddled out there. The press, you you talked about the press before. There's just not as m many people around doing this kind of work as there once were. <laughs> it's, it's, um, not, it's, it's cheap. It's not really ex incredibly expensive, but it's, you know, when I was a journalist, what did I want most? I wanted time, I wanted resources to be able to do what I could do. I wanted space in the newspaper. Um, and all that costs money. Um, and I was there at a time when it was fortunate that we had, um, editors who supported that, believed in it. Um, when I left the Tribune, when new management, new ownership came in, uh, my reporting partner, and we'd done all these investigations, helped get a couple dozen people out of prison. Um, they put them over in the food section to be an investigative reporter to find out well, is it really gluten-free? Um, and disbanded the criminal justice investigation. So, um, there's still some that do it. 
um, there are some that do it as freelancers and they don't always have an outlet that'll, you know, getting back to that, well, haven't we done that story before? It's someone else. It's someone else. Um, so I, I remain an optimist at a time when it can seem daunting. Um, and I feel like the more we just have to keep doing what we're doing. Um, because if, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? It's going to do it. Right. Well, so, and I, let me ask you this, or which, what are your thoughts on this? So I'm an advocate. Um, I got into this advocating for people who are wrongfully convicted and I advocate for people who are in prison who aren't being treated fairly. Um, and I've also advocated total pre-trial and it was a guy in North Carolina that was being convicted or they were trying or accusing him of a murder that he didn't commit. And it was basically identical to my husband's case. They were trying to charge him with felony murder um, because he had been through the system before and they just knew that he had committed this horrific crime. And so what I did was I went in and I attended a few of his um, court dates as well as, you know, after the court date, I would do a press release. And luckily there was a news station that was following it, trying to help bring awareness to his case. But you don't have many of those. Um, and they showed up. And so what I did was I just showed up to his his court dates and I interviewed the family a few times. And then we did a press conference and we interviewed the family or let the family talk at the press conference just to humanize him as a person. And so we were, I was, we were actually able to um, get him off of that charge. It was a capital murder charge and the jury found him not guilty on the capital murder. And of course they wanted to bring him back for second degree murder. Um, And I just kind of stayed in the media and posting on social media that he was innocent and that the prosecution was just trying to take another black man off the street with felony murder because North Carolina loves to use the felony murder rule to grab as many people as they can and put them in prison. Mm. Um, and so that in itself helped him to be able to, I think it was the day before the day of his um, second trial, the prosecutor came with, um, with a plea deal, which I don't agree with plea deals at all, but I mean, he could not deny that plea deal because they gave him 14 years where he could have got life plus 20 because he had another felony case that was in a different county that they would have added on to that. But just seeing the difference in me being able to go to the media and, and humanize him as a person, because of course the prosecution had put a gag order where the defense couldn't say anything. So I was the one that was out there voicing and thanking the shifting the narrative that, you know, he's, he he might have done some things, but he didn't do this. And we have evidence that he didn't do it. Oh, and so I think that that was a game changer for him. And so I just wonder if we could have more advocates help defense attorneys, because I know a lot of defense attorneys are overwhelmed and underpaid, especially public defenders. And we know that scale is, is one-sided because prosecution gets all the funding that they need to prosecute somebody, but the a public defender's office can't sometimes can't even get money to get a witness, an expert witness to come testify. And so, you know, let alone with them having hundreds and thousands of cases to one attorney and you have murder cases, you know, those take years to, to go through what's term two years. And so do you think that having people to advocate pre-trial could kind of help reduce the number of people who are being wrongfully convicted or incarcerated for a long amount of time? I absolutely do. Uh, you know, sunshine is a great medicine. 
you were this guy's Kim Kardashian. Um, you really were. And, and there's plenty of people that can be Kim Kardashians just like you without having the, you know, all the trappings. But the fact is, is that, is that you know, by bringing attention to cases, um, and you're right, defense lawyers often have, they're proscribed from doing certain things and they're limited by what the court or the judge particularly or what, 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 what they're allowed to do. But we don't, as members of the public, have the same sort of prescriptions. That's the kind of stuff. It may not seem like uh, much, but it is. Um, it, it, it really does, um, and have a, have an impact. And I think that prosecutors act a little differently when they know that people are watching them. Um, they, <laughs> you know, face it, people have to stand for election. You have to be somewhat at least cognizant, uh, of, of what's going on around you. And a lot of what happens happens out of the eye of, of, of everyone. Oh. But the, the family, the victims or the family of the accused, um, and most of the, a lot of the, when you talk about the accused, they don't know where to turn. They don't know who to talk to. They don't. And so, you know, your mailbox, I'm surprised is not full. Uh, oh, it's very full. <laughs> I got my own but I'm trying to get out as well. Where right. I came up with the black light incarceration show to have those people be able to come on and have a safe space and not feel like they're being judged. Cause I've heard a lot of people who have went to media and other podcasts and they kind of basically just got smeared or they were judged. Um, but to bring attention and give them their time and space to tell their story, because most of the time your story is never told. I know my husband's situation, he was all over, you know, every single newspaper and every, you know, every time you turn on the news, you saw it you know, his case. And so he never had the chance to tell his side of the right. story. And so I made this podcast so that people like him and other people who have been wrongfully convicted, which there's thousands, millions of them, can tell their story and hope that somebody hears it and, you know, wants to come and help them. Because we know that you only hear the side of the story from the state. You don't never hear their true actual story. And so that's the reason why I made this show. And I'll talk about it on my show all the time for people to get involved in your budget, to go to budget classes, because I know I didn't get involved in any, you know, like I know we have the NC Budget Center. I didn't get involved with that until I started advocating for my husband, understanding that my tax paying dollars is being used to mistreat them. My tax paying dollars is used right. to go towards prison then to, uh, you know, falsely accused or wrongfully convict people while they're just, okay, like we'll throw out this million dollar lawsuit. And that's, that's not fair to us because we work hard for our money and we need to understand that we have to demand them because the people have the power. And I think that we have so long been blindsided by our government thinking, oh, well, they, they got it. They know what to do with the budget. They'll take my money and, and, and put it in places where it's supposed to go. And that's far from the truth as we see. And right. so I always encourage people to get involved in your local budget center and figure out where your money's going. You can easily look up the budget for the sheriff and how much money that they request and exactly what the money is going to. It'll break it all the way down. And so I, I always encourage people that in order to change things, we have to know where our money is going and we have to demand that we don't want our money to continue to go in, inside of the prison or jails or the courthouse. 
because it's not making our community safe. It's not making our communities thrive. And, you know, I want America to know that you can make, you can make your economy boom with thriving communities, not incarcerating the communities, but having them to where they have sustainable living and sustainable wages. And that's the thing. We don't have resources. That's the reason why people, if they do commit a crime, they go right back because once you come out and you've been labeled, all your rights and, and resources are basically gone. So what else are you going to do when you have a baby that's starving? You, you know, you got to go out there and, and get, get it how you live because you got a baby that's looking at you or you got younger children or a wife or, you know, a grandmother or a grandfather, whatever, you know what I mean? And so you have to provide for your family. And I think that that's where we have got it twisted in America. We label our people and we throw them away when I've been studying the Norway model really well. And the way that they go about it is the way that everybody should go about it. Like if you are incarcerating people, make sure that you're treating them with dignity and humanity and not taking away their living, their social living, their connection with their family, but to um, get to the root cause because punitive punishment will never get to the root cause of what has happened. And we know that as far as the drugs go, that our own government has brought the drugs in. That's how the crack got in <laughs> to the communities was your president that at that time that brought him in. So I think that we have to do better about shifting the narrative and having everybody help shift that narrative. Because like I said, we've been blindsided for so many years by our government telling us one thing and it's totally far from what they're telling us. That is the whole rhetoric. And so that's not where we really need to be. And so I talk about it a lot. So please get involved in your budgets and please reach out to somebody who is incarcerated because just having hope and that support can make a world a difference for them. You're absolutely right. And I, I, you know, when we talk about sort of the disappearance of the press, one of the things that has um, emerged are podcasts such as yours and podcasts that have taken a look at, at wrongful convictions and they've, they've grown exponentially. And that's uh, been something that didn't exist, you know, uh, 15 years ago, um, 20 years ago was just not something that, and, and so there are more of those. So, and I think that they all do what you're talking about, which is raise consciousness and, you know, education, consciousness raising, um, if people feel like they have a, uh, a meaningful, uh, way to have some input, um, that's really what we're trying to figure out. I mean, people say, what should I do? I say, well, you can start with learn about what's going on, uh, educate yourself in the system, figure out, um, you know, you're a voter. Um, you can influence other people's votes. Um, you can advocate for people. Um, we're not as powerless as we might think sometimes and find an organization that you want to help support. Sometimes it might feel like this is just a big giant wall with top with barbed wire that we're trying to butt our heads against, but you know, uh, and it, it can feel that way because that's what 30 years of this kind of policy in this country has led to. We just need to keep fighting the good fight like you're doing. We do. Well, Maurice, I thank you so much for all of your expertise. It has been wonderful. I know that you have a website. I know that you have a book. Let people know where they can follow you or find you or find your book. Um, and then 
you know, if you want to give out the exact the national exoneration information, just in case there's somebody, and I'm sure there's plenty of people in North Carolina is listening, <laughs> um, that can actually, you know, might be on your exoneration list who don't think that they can, um, you know, how they can reach out to them. Well, just Google National Registry of Exonerations and it pops right up and you'll see us. Um, the one thing, you know, we don't investigate the cases. We just get them after exoneration. Uh, when people write to us, we try to point them in the right direction, saying, you know, my, my sister, my brother, my father, you know, uh, what can you do? And I'll say, well, here's this innocence organization uh, that you might reach out to. Increasingly, you know, prosecutors are starting to set up what we call conviction integrity units to actually do that work. Um, some of them are legit. Um, some of them are window dressing uh, as a way to get, you know, perhaps get votes, but, um, some of them really do, uh, really do great work. If you, if there's any, uh, anybody out there who's, um, got a, a rich uncle, uh, who wants to support our continuing work, um, we have a donations portal. <laughs> please donate to them. Y'all please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They do great work. They really do. Well, listen, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on and thank the, you. doing what you're doing, sweetheart. I really. Will. I am okay. And somebody's got to do it. I mean, you know, I, I just want to be a, you know, example to show that it can be done. And with us together, we can move mountains. It can be done. Yeah. Most definitely. All right. All right, Maurice. Take care. Have a good one. You too. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.